what's going on, veterinary anesthesia nerds? My name is Tasha McNerney. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds podcast. I have a fun one today. We are going to kind of step out of the OR uh, in a way, but also we're going to talk about ways that we can train people. What do we do when we have new employees? What's the best way to train them? How can we best assess people? Are we asking the right questions on our multiple choice tests? Are tests even a good idea? We're going to talk about all of that today. Uh, We are joined by CVT Claire Sauer. She is a technician who works in a very large ICU ER setting. She does have an interest in anesthesia, which is why we kind of came together. She is Philadelphia based. Not only is she a CVT, you guys, but the reason I really wanted to pick her brain is because she also has a master's in education in professional and secondary education. So she really understands the sciences and how to teach adult learners and if we are doing things right and if we could be doing things better. So we're gonna talk to her today. She also has a special interest in community work and shelter medicine and getting the next generation of uh, people involved in veterinary medicine. So welcome to the podcast, Claire. Hey, Tasha. Hey, listeners. (laughs) (laughs) So we're keeping it super casual today. Uh, We are literally um, in my house. Uh, We just decided to throw together a podcast before we went to uh, the pool. It's like a hot ass day here in Philadelphia. So we're going to talk about ways that we can make education better before we head out to the pool and drink uh, maybe some gin and lemonade by the pool. Woohoo! All right. So Claire, here's what I want to know. And you and I have talked about this a lot just in the hallways at work. But one thing that I think that we probably could be doing better in veterinary medicine is training our new hires. I hear from a lot of people, especially in anesthesia, when I go into their clinics and they want me to train, you know, do a webinar in anesthesia or do a wet lab for their clinic, which I love doing. But I hear from a lot of people that, you know, they have these checklists for their new hires. Maybe some of the checklists work. Maybe they don't. Are the checklists the best idea? You know, how can we best train new hires when they first come into our clinic? Um, Should we be setting them up with mentors? And would love to get your thoughts on how we can best do this. Yeah. So that's a very big (laughs) question with lots of different parts. And I've actually been getting a lot of recent feedback from uh, different practices, different vet techs in different practices, and that all have to work with different ways of structure, learning, training, not only for new hires, but existing. But let's look at new hires. When someone comes on board, uh, I've work currently at three different hospitals. I have moved around a lot during COVID to help out when times were tough. So all of those new hire things, I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, A lot of folks are using a leveling system, which can be good. It can also be bad. And lots of folks will do different types of uh, testing. Usually it's a formal test that you sit down and you write the answers for, uh, for information. Um, What I'm seeing a lot of is the lack of follow through. So no matter what kind of training you're giving your new hires, they're not always seeing the back end. So once they are integrated into your system, how are they doing? What growth do they still need? And then how we follow through with that. So the first part of hiring someone, um, how do you go about doing it? Do you give them a test? Yeah, I would love to talk about that. I think it's really interesting. Me, myself, you know, just going to so many practices, being a relief technician, and also currently 
you know, this kind of stays on the down low <laughs> on the job hunt myself for a full time <laughs> position. Um, it's been really interesting. Some of the interviews I've been on and some of them, you know, when they want assessments or they I've even had some where they want to do um, uh, what do they call it? Like personality tests uh, or different personality testing. So like, looking at starting with the hiring, Claire, again, putting on your master's of education hat and thinking about how people function during interviews and testing, what's the best way that we can make sure that we are hiring the right people? Um, I think that we often will close our doors to folks that we're trying to do the interviewing process with. So we're very sheltered and we don't allow them to see what we're about as a practice. So when we first bring them in, um, I know some people, as you mentioned, get the personality tests. Some get a knowledge-based test to just sit down and write. And sometimes we do a quote-unquote working interview where someone follows another around. Um, I think part of seeing the practice is really important, walking around, being engaged, and getting that person to get involved. See how, do they take initiative? Do they have like muscle memory in the ER for doing, for placing a catheter? Do they know what to do on the spot with a triage or do they need help with that? I think part of that though involves a discussion with that person regarding their strengths and weaknesses. Remember a job interview you were on, you're freaking nervous, you're sweating, you might be uncomfortable because you had to iron your suit if you're wearing that or your scrubs. Um, you know, the higher, I think we should always present our best selves and dress like they said for the job that you want, not the job you're interviewing for necessarily. Um, so present yourself. Don't just come in your jeans and then be ready to work. And that, that's like the fourth, fourth most thing. But show them what you got. And yeah, I might not be able to place a catheter on the spot, even though I've placed thousands of them. I still fumble when these wonderful clinicians I work with um, are watching me place a catheter or holding the animal's arm. But so keep in mind that person's going to be nervous. They're going to be a little different than they might normally be, especially with a mentor or a person that they're shadowing with. But having that hands-on assessment, I think gives you a better idea than just those written tests and those personality tests. Oh, 100%. And I, you know, Claire and I were talking before we started recording and I had told her that I had been doing some reading lately on the use of personality testing and things like Myers-Briggs or DISC for, you know, using it during the interview process. And really, even the people who have developed these tests, the scientists behind it say that, like, this is not something that should be used to make a hiring decision. If you want to use personality testing or that kind of thing, once the person has been hired to figure out what their trajectory could be within your organization, that's great. But I think we do need to be a little bit more open-minded and we need to see this person in action with the caveat that they're going to be nervous and they might fuck up because like, listen, we're all human. Also, maybe the people who are doing the assessment of the person could maybe be a little flexible and not so rigid, right? Like if somebody comes in and they're doing a working interview with me and they go to place a catheter and they don't tape the catheter exactly the way I would tape it, Right. Like, I don't know. I'm not going to knock Sometimes off points and be like, ride. right. I'm not going to be like, oh, my gosh, you used four pieces of tape. I only used three pieces of tape. This is it. Don't um, talk about my soapbox right. with the catheter placement right <laughs> let's, now. Let's not yeah. get started on the tabbing of the tape. We will not. We, it's well, a, it's well, definitely an anesthesia versus ICU uh, difference of opinion on that one. But that's fine. We're going to leave that <laughs> argument for cocktails later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, but, but part of that, um, the working interview with the shadowing is look at the follow up. So yeah, you're not going to criticize them for using four pieces of tape versus three, but you are going to want the folks that they did shadow with um, to reflect on how they 
think that person would fit in. So not their skills necessarily. You're not judging them or grading them on, you know, those that catheter placement or how did they exactly restrain how it's a little different than our practice because everyone thinks that they do things the right way within their practice or within themselves. Sure. And we have to remember there's an open world out there where everyone finds a good way to do things. What you have to look at is did that person jump in? So you're not looking necessarily at a personality test, but you're getting an idea of how they might fit. If they're there um, talking poorly about their past employer or bringing up gossip about something on the floor, then that might give you a hint as to what your behavior you're going to see when they're hired. However, if they're jumping in, they're earnestly working and they're really having a good rapport with everyone. They're communicating well when there is an emergency or if it's a GP practice, they're comfortable just jumping on the computer and filling in histories or getting engaged with cleaning up the rooms, um, helping with x-rays. Then you know, you know, hey, you can do a good evaluation from there. But the follow up in talking to those folks who are shadowing and getting a reflection from them and making it so it's not a tedious thing. So I know I've done lots of working interviews with people coming on. I don't know as a shadower what I'm supposed to be doing. So give the right. people who are in charge of having that hire with them and I some expectations. Hey, we'd really like to see X, Y, and Z from this person. They're interviewing for this position. I'm usually never told for what position they're hiring for and what that person is coming in for and what they're looking for. And if I had known that ahead of time, I could ask better questions and I could put them in situations maybe where those things I can evaluate um, casually. Uh, so knowing those expectations and then not asking them to fill in all these forms afterwards, but maybe having a quick something they can do on their phone that says maybe an email. Hey, I saw these strengths. I saw these weaknesses. And this is, I think that they'd be good compatible, or I think that they could use, you know, some training, but not straight up judgment, not reflection on personality, the personality tests, using them to hire. I get, I, I agree with you as a hiring process. I think it can be flaky uh, because you don't know the whole culture of your practice. You only have your side of it, the hiring person's side of um, what vision of what the culture is. If you are bringing in, um, someone that may be a little abrupt for the culture, that gossiper, or if you have a predominantly old school white practice and you're trying to in integrate more BIPOC folks in, um, you can say your personality is one thing, but the culture represented by that person or by the folks on the floor or doing the work um, is important to reflect as well. And you might not have that sense. So you may say they don't fit and they could be an amazing asset based on that personality test. Yeah, 100%. And I think that that kind of goes along with back when I started, everybody was like, oh, hire for hire for culture, hire for culture. And what we ended up doing was hiring for, you know, we ended up hiring this just homogenous group of people, right, that looked like us, that kind of like talked like us and like had the same ideas as us. Uh, and I do think that Sometimes we maybe need to look outside of that. Certainly there's an underlying, you know, value system within your practice, but just to say, you know, if somebody is like exactly like us, they're going to be a great fit. That's not always the case. Yeah, it's not. And I think um, what uh, something I've actually heard about a lot of uh, vet school acceptances lately is when you look at the classes, I've talked about this with a number of folks are inside and out of academia. The vet's, schools that what they're putting out right now is not necessarily all white folks 
Um, they're still accepting, though, people who are very much culturally the same. And that's still something we're working on as a field in general in our practices as well. So, you know, we have to represent everyone as a culture and we have to consider how those tests are going to be reflected with the different cultures. So then back to our hiring. um, Okay, so we we might bring them in. We might give them a little knowledge based test um, and just let them know, hey, this is just a a random test. And what I would do is get a bunch of different information that I'd expect a kennel attendant all the way up to a manager to have and throw a bunch of questions in there that. Um, may or may not be multiple choice, may or may not be short answer. We don't want to make extra work for you, but we also don't want it to be cut and dry so you can't see their true knowledge. And then maybe ask them, prepare them for what they're going to be doing. Hey, I'm going to ask you to be on the floor. Can you just wear scrubs and be ready to work and have someone shadow them, uh, have them shadow someone where the shadowing person uh, I'm, I'm confusing my words, but um, <laughs> the person who is being shadowed and the shadower are both going to be understanding the expectations that you're looking for. So like I'm interviewing for a role as an emergency technician. I know that I'm expected to be able to triage, to be able to have an IV catheter placement, to be able to restrain an animal, to be able to give injections, to know how to calculate my emergency drugs or CRIs. So maybe during that shadowing, whenever there's an example of such, we can jump in and I can make sure I understand and feel comfortable with the process. And the shadow, the person I'm shadowing will also have an understanding of that. And then how do you wrap all that up? So you did the interview, you think they're stellar, their test was great, you shadowed with them. Um, now you want to see how did they do on the floor? How is this somebody we want to bring into our practice? So then have that feedback from the shadow, the person they shadowed, have a feedback from anyone else on the floor they may have interacted with. And again, not a judgment, but just, hey, how do you think this person would fit in? Without talking to the folks they're going to interact with every day, you don't really know. So, you know, have that impression. And then after they start, I wouldn't do it initially, but after maybe a week one or week two, once they start getting their feet under them and know where things are in the building, uh, you might want to do something like that personality test to let them know, hey, there's different ways that you might, we might need to approach your learning. And right now we notice that this is working and this is working why don't you tell us what's not working for you or what is working so then we can build our structure of training once our hires in a little bit better. Yeah, I agree. I think that that's probably a better use for if you wanted to do like a disc assessment or even a Myers-Briggs or something like that. Um, and also, this is just a side note for you guys out there. If you're ever asked to do a working interview and you are working on the floor, just be aware that uh, working interviews are paid. So don't work for free. Uh, if you need the reference on that, you can hit me up on the socials. But that's out there. You need to be paid for working interviews um, if you are working. Now, let's get into it, Claire. If, like, let's say we have this new hire. We've done a personality test. Or we've done something. You know, They're moving up. And they are, let's say, in anesthesia department, right? And they're currently a level one. And we decide as an organization that we want to use checklists or a leveling system. How do we make sure that the, you know, how do we create these checklists? You know, it just seems that some organizations are creating them out of thin air. What's the best way to make sure that these checklists are going to actually align with the trajectory of, you know, a technician over the years at our clinic. And also, 
move them up in a way that they feel like they are getting education, that they're gaining knowledge, that they're involved in the process, etc. Do checklist work? Does leveling work? And your experience as an educator, what's your opinion? Uh, Yeah, I mean, we have evidence that shows that they work, you know, and they do keep us in reminding us regularly of SOPs that exist. And do they exist because our bosses want to be a pain in our ass? No, they exist for our safety, for our patient safety, for the continuity of the care we're providing. And I think it's great when people find their own way of doing things. But when there's so many chefs in the kitchen, that's when we have problems like miscalculations of CRIs, like um, not communicating exactly what's going on with a patient and you drop the ball and something terrible happens or, you know, it is just not a good communication system that causes some havoc between staff. So I think, yes, checklist work. But I think before we even get to the checklist, in an ideal world, um, we would want to have objectives and get everyone who's a part of those checklists and going to be taking place in their care involved. So it's not the manager sitting back and saying, oh, remember when I was 10 years, 10 years ago when I was in the anesthesia department, this is the things we needed to do. But then take that manager and saying, you know, from the OSHA level, I need these things to happen within the surgical suite. And then, um, or I need these things to happen um, with our anesthesia machines and before we even enter the OR. The OR has to be this way. We need to meet these standards. Take your anesthesiologist if one is available or consult with one and say, you know, are these steps, what are the steps necessary for the checklist we're creating? What would your influence be and what would be ideal for you? Ask your surgeons, ask your recovering doctors if you're trading them off to a regular um, emergency room or a treatment type doctor. Ask your nurses and both, oh, sorry, your techs in both situations. Ask, hey, anesthesia techs, your recovering techs, your um, you know, patient care techs, and even your triage techs like, or the intake. So ask every single person that may be involved with, um, like have an involvement with that checklist, what they think is necessary. And it doesn't have to be a free-for-all. You could do it as like a Google checklist or something. And then create that with feedback from them. Why do you want to involve them is because then they have ownership of it. Then they feel responsible and they don't feel like it's a management thing being thrown at them and one more thing to get done. And what we find with any type of thing, even introducing really strict biosecurity that people want to be resistant to, is using a checklist to promote safety. But also when they have ownership of that checklist or the expectations involved, they're going to be prouder of it. They're going to have more ownership of it. And it's going to get done not only more, but better. So yes, checklists 100%, but there's a limit. Are they getting done? Are they appropriate for what's happening? And are they relevant? So it's important to include when you're doing those annual reviews. Yes, do annual reviews, you jerks. (laughs) (laughs) Please do annual reviews. And I would say, I would advocate that if you're a manager or a leader, you know, you shouldn't just wait until annually. You really should be doing employee check-ins, you know, quarterly. See, like, how are you doing? Do you feel like, you know, you're being supported? Are you on the right trajectory? Do you, you know, what can we do? Don't you worry. We'll get to those. But but I think during, when you're putting it on your calendar, hey, it's annual review time. Also put in an evaluation with maybe a team within each department or with each area of your hospital for review of assessments, of review of expectations. Because along with those, you want to look at when you're building your checklist as well, you want to look up make objectives for each task or each SOP. So example, if you're bringing a patient into the OR, so you're going to say anesthesia prep, make it, make you know, well, this is what we're going to do. 
and make your checklist or your SOPs accordingly. The SOPs, when you're making them, think of an objective. What is our goal? Well, our goal is to get our patient um, pre-medded, induced, intubated, and ready, prepped for surgery within a short time frame, but safely. And okay, so that's your objective. What are the expectations? Well, the safety could be an expectation, but an expectation is that two techs perform the job or a tech and assistant, um, that your equipment is all ready to go when the tech approaches with the animal, etc. So you can make your expectations from that. That's where you build your checklist. So you're not just making this checklist up out of the blue. You're taking those objectives that you've created then base it on the expectations. And that's where a good place to get that feedback from the team is. What are the expectations that they have and you have? And then you take those expectations and you build together those checklists. And you put them on the wall, you laminate them, you take little rings and you hang them. Another thing you can do is QR codes. So if your team Mm -hmm. is allowed to have their cell phones on the floor, have a QR code. And each time they pass by something, it's way easier to have your cell phone in your hand and do that checklist than it is to open a tablet or open the paperwork and have yet another thing to work on. But if you can do a QR list along the way, or you can do a checklist that's easy to see, visualize along the way and have a written off, I actually did this, that's great. Um, The other thing that you mentioned was levels, right? And so I know a lot of places are instituting levels and I've actually been getting feedback on folks who are trying to implement an education system because they think their texts are missing out and they're not developing appropriately or they're developing and they want to kind of capture those good developers and help have them mentor help along the others then i have folks that are i've talked to that are within a leveling system now both have pluses and minuses but again i think it's capturing the engagement of the staff that you're trying to evaluate and getting them involved if your if your leveling system is not relevant if it's not created by the people it's affecting or how they don't have input in it then it's going to fail. It's just not effective. And then you're giving me an archaic level system and then you decide to change it and I have to do a whole level one again. That also is kind Mm -hmm. of an asshole move. Yeah. Um, You know, go with where I am, but there's, you know, there's always going to be controversy with people who have been there for a while or, or, you know, they're lifers or um, how, how can we get them evaluated as well to show them that they still have skills to grow? 100%. 100%. Everybody still has skills to grow. Oh, I mean, I, I learn I, every day, man. <laughs> yes. So with this leveling system, Claire, because you got, you and I have both worked in practices that utilize leveling systems and then they will test based on the level. Um, let's talk about the testing, you know, oh, yeah. from your experience as not only a technician, but as an educator, what is the best way to go about testing? Because I do feel like we fall into this trap of just testing people with, you know, a 30 question multiple choice test. Not everyone is going to perform well with that. So what are your thoughts on that? What are some options? How can we best test people to ensure that they can level up? Uh, Well, that also involves lots of things. And whenever I have to take a test, which is often, of course, in our field, when we're doing CE, when we are trying to level up, quote unquote, um, or, you know, just to get where I am today with my master's and my CVT, we've had to take all these tests. My brain just about spins because I've spent semesters on how to design tests, how to properly assess, how to make sure that your learner is being assessed properly and you're engaging their brain and giving them a fair and equitable assessment. So um, I can give multiple choice of the things I think I need. But what I'm finding is that involvement of the staff is not there. 
So when they make that um, leveling system, look at those objectives. What do you think a person in your level one, so to say, is going to be expected to perform, perform well? And what are, if they don't perform on this level test to a certain degree, what does that mean for them? So make the expectations very clear. With the assessment itself, go back to your objectives. Go back to those expectations for you to design the test. So you look at your checklists, you look at the skills that you decided in your objectives, and you use those to make sure they're covered within your assessment. So you can't just make your assessment on the things that you like or these things right from a textbook if you didn't talk about that language used. Multiple choice is going to eliminate a lot of folks and their brains because I've noticed a lot of folks in our field have severe test anxiety. I think we are a very judgmental field. We expect a very, very high performance of all of us. And we're all pretty damn high functioning in type A. So (laughs) you put us all in a room and that's why we have so many explosions. But um, something we have to think about is all of the different ways we learn and all of the different ways our brains work. And so those are things you don't always know or want to touch on or aren't um, openly discussed in our field, especially with a newer person. So if you have a new grad, they're already like shaking, sweating, freaking out every day, crying in their car because, oh my gosh, this is so many things that I'm responsible for. So let's make it a little easy for them. Not in let's dumb down the test, but let's make sure that the test is covering things they're comfortable with. They have been introduced to this objective. They've worked through checklists. They've worked through SOPs and we've seen them perform it. Now they're ready to take the level test. Um, You can put timelines on them, but having that person flexible and work with their timeline, I find is more efficient too. If you have somebody who's like level one right out of school and they are struggling, say, you know what? All right, revisit it every two weeks, three weeks, and maybe have them set up with a mentor. The mentor will be someone who's comfortable with the approach of talking and not being super strict and not talking them down. But those multiple choice assessments, geez, guys, come on. I know they're easy to grade. I know you can open your ca- your cabinet or your desktop and you have the copy of them right there. But guess what else is there? The answers that every single person took over the years. And they're shared. I'm sorry to say. People, it's not that they want to cheat. It's not that they don't know it. The tests are a pain in the ass when they don't reflect what we're actually learning. So the relevance of them is what's also important is, hey, we've been through COVID this year. We haven't had time to level test anyone. We haven't had time to even do our SOPs correctly. So why not reevaluate our SOPs, put those back in place before we start leveling people with these old archaic levels. Make sure you're updating those levels regularly. Make sure you're making sure the relevance of them is there and their objectives are also correspondingly changing as well. So that when you do review them, when you do have your assessment, it part of it is on the floor. Part of it is them doing. Part of it is also them explaining things to you. Maybe you have part verbal. So while you're on the floor, they don't know, you let them know, like, I'm going to be evaluating you and you can ask them some questions. So they don't feel on the spot, but they can describe things to you rather than, well, what kind of drug is this? You could say, oh, we're using this. Why would we use this and not another one? You know, why are we using um, midazolam and we're not using Dexmed? Like, is there a reason for this? There is no reason. I'm trying to win bonus points here. (laughs) All right. Maybe it's a dog with microbial disease. Maybe, But there's, I think doing a, just like we say, we want multimodal pain management. We want a multimodal assessment. 
because that is going to touch on the different types of person and their learning. And that way you can see, hey, they kicked butt out on the floor. They kicked butt with all of their verbals. But when it came to that multiple choice, they stunk. I don't want to keep someone who has great potential within my practice back just because of their testing abilities. Because we're not on the floor testing all day. We're on the floor saving lives. So that's what's important. And that goes back to my objectives. The other part of that is getting them engaged in what they want to give to the practice. Every single person isn't here for the money. I mean, yes, we are. Come on. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, 100%, especially in entry-level tech. Yes. yes. <laughs> but what we are here is different reasons. For instance, if you got asked me what my passions are, I can talk to you for seven years about shelter med and helping um, different kinds of youth that are underprivileged in the city get engaged in our field. I will talk your ear off about how much I love anesthesia and it's in like involvement in ICU practice and ECC practice, but you wouldn't know that unless you just said hello to me, actually. <laughs> but in an evaluation that wouldn't be able to shine through. You wouldn't know that I feel strongly about blood banks. You wouldn't know that I feel strongly about um, making a better PPE system for our, our department. Unless you ask me my different like likes and don't likes, my strengths and weaknesses, how you think we can improve as a group and not just a little question on a computer, like have a genuine conversation about it. That will not only get that employee invested, but it will also make them feel like they're heard and they'll have better performance overall as studies will show. Oh, 100%. And I think that's what's going back to, you know, I think people don't even need to have a conversation with me to know that I am obsessed with anesthesia. You can just see all of the tattoos on my body. <laughs> um, but certainly I'm going to talk about how much I love anesthesia. But for me, honestly, like organizational management structure is a huge passion of mine. And I think that a lot of times in Batman, we completely duff it up. Like we, oh, <laughs> we, yeah. I, how many of us have been in clinics that have, they're gorgeous clinics. They have beautiful equipment. They have all the drugs. They have great people, but the management and leadership doesn't have a structure oh. and it messes <laughs> it up. And then people end up leaving and it, you know, divulges oh. into madness, right? So I love organizational structure and leadership. Like that's a big passion of mine because I think that especially there are so many places that have the building blocks of greatness. They just need a little help reigning in the management. And I think to your point, it really is important if you're going to be a manager, you're going to be a leader. There's a difference there, right? You can be just a manager, but if you're going to be a leader and a mentor, you do need to have those regular check-ins. And I know we're really busy and, oh, I don't have time and I got this meeting. No, if you really want to be a servant leader and you want to care for your team, you've got to make the time to have regular check-ins. So not just once a year, not even just every other you know, six months, regular check-ins with your team to see where are you? How are you feeling about everything? Is there anything, again, you want more guidance with? Is there anything that we could be doing better as a leadership team to support you in this? Because I think that we just hand people these paper checklists or um, leveling systems and we say, okay, there you go. Yeah. 100%, Tosh. Yeah. Um, I think the check-ins are kind of a two-part system though, because if you put someone in charge, a leader, they have to want to be a leader. And this so, is true. Like this there's true. a lot of folks who are have been in our practice for 25 years. They are I just like want to bow down to them on a daily basis. They're just freaking incredible techs, freaking incredible clinicians. 
but they do not want any part of being a mentor. They just need to show up and get through their day. And that is hard enough. So one thing that we could do is have people who are interested in being that leader step up and they might not be necessarily the person we see as a job, but you never know what's going to come out. Mm -hmm. The next part is giving them some kind of a training in being a leader. 100%. I mean, I say this all the time. You cannot move somebody into a leadership position just because they've been at your practice for 10 years. Yeah. If you're, and if you are going to move them into a leadership position, yeah, A, they got to want it. Yeah. But B, you got to support them and train them in the exact same way you would train any other employee. Yeah. And a lead is very different than a manager. Yes. Okay. A lead is not a manager. A lead is not expected to rein their people in or anything like that. It's to offer guidance. It's like, hey, I'm, I'm good at what I do and I want, I'm good at also sharing what I do in that I'm showing you the soaps. I'm trained for the soaps that we've created. I'm here to listen to you. The manager then is the person who's responsible for communicating with that lead and the team and making sure that things are flowing well and doing all the logistics. Everyone needs training now. One of my biggest pet peeves is when I hear like, those who can't do teach. I say, suck it, sorry. (laughs) Um, How would you feel if you were a doctor, you have all these accolades, you went to school for a million bajillion years and have the debts to prove it. And someone Googled, was Dr. Google in the room and telling you how to be your doctor? Well, this is what I face every day as an educator. I am a properly trained educator and I have over a decade of experience in all over the world teaching. But every single day I see people appointed as educators teaching in our field that have no training whatsoever on how to be an educator. They're making up these multiple choice tests, these levels, not only within a practice, but also within our programs, our tech programs. We have almost no high school programs that are easily structured. And even in some of our bachelor's and vet school programs. Uh, Yes, we're good at what we do, but does that mean we're good educators? 100%. And it goes to that manager role too. Just because they've done it for 25 years, do they want to teach? No, let them decide what role they want within the department, or you can nudge them in certain ways and give them different responsibilities, but make sure it's a conversation. So am I saying that everyone has to go and get a doctor in ed to, in order to teach? Absolutely not. But I'm saying give them some tools and give them the time to be able to engage those tools and restructure things. So don't say, this is what we do. This is how we do it. We're done. Allow people to contribute to the team to contribute to how the practices run and the assessments are designed, but also um, give them time to learn and time to grow. In that aspect, before you give someone a level test, all right, you're ready for your level one test. It looks like you've completed these skills. It looks like you could work a little bit more. Have wet labs, have time for those folks to, in each level, you know, say, hey, we're going to have a cadaver lab this week and we're going to practice um, IV catheter placement and advanced catheter placement. You know, if you're going for your level one, you're welcome to come for the catheter. If you're level two, you're welcome to come for advanced or lower. But hey, some of those higher level ones that know we're about to take that test and we really want to gain these skills so we can advance through level two are welcome to join too. Like have a wet lab where you're actually showing them how to do this stuff. If you're worried about dental blocks or cleaning teeth, you know, you can get ahead and just sit there and do wet labs with your people. Close for an extended lunch one day. Have people come in on a Saturday. Will it cost the practice? Sure. It will cost you to pay your your staff there, but also you'll gain so much from it that you won't have mistakes. You won't have people feeling like they're held back. And you're going to see people doing their jobs way better because it's clearly 
shown to them what is expected of them. And they have a chance to practice that with direct feedback and not just, oh, I have to work with her again. You know, it's someone there that is a professional. You know, have everyone, have someone come in and teach CPR one day. And then everyone knows, hey, this is how we do recover or this is how we do CPR here. Um, having that time that you set aside is also important for them to practice, to for everyone to take a deep breath and then just not feel judged for while they're learning these skills. 100%. I mean, we all have things that we're great at. We all have, I mean, I have things that I, listen, if you said to me, Tasha, I need you to place an intraosseous catheter in this little kitten. I would be like, well, I might need to pull out the book because I haven't done one in like, you know, <laughs> seven, eight years, right? So there's always things that we can be practicing and getting better. And I love it. Claire, we're kind of at the end, but yeah. I know that people are probably going to be curious. How can they find you? Are you on social media? Where can we find you at? And if people wanted to have you kind of come into their clinic or evaluate their leveling methods or, you know, their testing and like, build a better educational program, where can they find you? Yeah. So I am um, claircvt.tvt at gmail.com. Um, so that's my email. Tasha will put it in the notes. I will sure. put it in the notes. Um, I'm also on Instagram as the vet tech teacher. Um, so take a look for me. I'm the lady with the pink hair. Um, but anything that you guys want to hear about, I'm just kind of starting out on the social media thing. I'm old, bear with me. Um, but you're welcome to uh, just shoot me an e a text, a message, whatever, and I'll be glad to chat with you more. Uh, if you see me at a conference or out and about or, or in Philly, give us a holler. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Claire Sauer, for joining us and making sure we are doing our veterinary education the best way possible.